Section 1 of The Babylonian Captivity of the Church by Martin Luther Translated by R. S. Grignon This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Concerning the Lord's Supper There are two passages which treat in the clearest manner of this subject, and at which we shall look. The statements in the Gospels respecting the Lord's Supper and the words of Paul, 1 Corinthians 11. Matthew, Mark, and Luke agree that Christ gave the whole sacrament to all his disciples, and that Paul taught both parts of it is so certain that no one has yet been shameless enough to assert the contrary. Add to this that, according to the relation of Matthew, Christ did not say concerning the bread, Eat ye all of this, but did say concerning the cup, Drink ye all of this. Mark also does not say, They all ate but they all drank of it. Each writer attaches the mark of universality to the cup, not to the bread, as if the Spirit foresaw the schism that should come, and should forbid to some that communion in the cup which Christ would have common to all. How furiously would they rave against us if they had found the word all applied to the bread and not to the cup. They would leave us no way of escape, would clamor us down, pronounce us heretics, condemn us as schismatics. But when the word stands on our side against them, they allow themselves to be bound by no laws of logic, these men of freest will, while they change and change again, and throw into utter confusion even the things which are of God. But suppose me to be standing on the other side, and questioning my lords the papists. In the supper of the Lord the whole sacrament, or the sacrament in both kinds, was either given to the presbyters alone, or, at the same time, to the laity. If to the presbyters alone, for thus they will have it to be, then it is no wise lawful that any kind should be given to the laity, for it ought not to be rashly given to any to whom Christ did not give it at the first institution. Otherwise, if we allow one of Christ's institutions to be changed, we make the whole body of his laws of no effect, and any man may venture to say that he is bound by no law or institution of Christ. For in dealing with Scripture, one special exception does away with any general statement. If, on the other hand, it was given to the laity as well, it inevitably follows that reception in both kinds ought not to be denied to the laity and in denying it to them when they seek it, we act impiously and contrary to the deed, example, and institution of Christ. I confess that I have been unable to resist this reasoning, and have neither read, heard of, nor discovered anything to be said on the other side, while the words and example of Christ stand unshaken, who says, not by way of permission, but of commandment, Drink ye all of this. For if all are to drink of it, and this cannot be understood, as said to the presbyters alone, then it is certainly an impious deed to debar the laity from it when they seek it, were it even an angel from heaven who did so. For what they say of its being left to the decision of the church, which kind should be administered, is said without rational ground, is alleged without authority, and is as easily contemned as proved nor can it avail against any adversary who opposes to us the word and deed of Christ, and whose blows must therefore be returned with the word of Christ, and this we have not on our side. If, however, either kind can be denied to the laity, 
then by the same decision of the church a part of baptism or of penance might be taken from them since in each case the reason of the matter and the power are alike therefore as the whole of baptism and the whole of absolution are to be granted to all the laity so is the whole sacrament of the bread if they seek it i am much astonished however at their assertion that it is wholly unlawful under pain of mortal sin for presbyters to receive only one kind in the mass and this for no other reason than that as they all unanimously say the two kinds form one full sacrament which ought not to be divided let them tell me then why is it lawful to divide it in the case of the laity and why they alone should not be granted the entire sacrament do they not admit on their own showing that either both kinds ought to be granted to the laity or that it is no lawful sacrament which is granted to them under one kind how can the one kind be a full sacrament in the case of the laity and not a full one in the case of the presbyters why do they vaunt the decision of the church and the power of the pope in this matter the words of god and the testimonies of truth cannot thus be done away with it follows further that if the church can take from the laity the one kind the wine she can also take from them the other kind the bread and thus might take from the laity the whole sacrament of the altar and deprive the institution of christ of all effect in their case but i ask by what authority if however she cannot take away the bread or both kinds neither can she take the wine nor can any possible argument on this point be brought against an opponent since the church must necessarily have the same power in regard to either kind as in regard to both kinds if she has it not as regards both kinds she has it not as regards either i should like to hear what the flatterers of rome may choose to say on this point but what strikes me most forcibly of all and thoroughly convinces me is that saying of christ this is my blood which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins here you see most clearly that the blood is given to all for whose sins it is shed now who will dare to say that it was not shed for the laity do you not see who it is that he addresses as he gives the cup does he not give it to all does he not say that it was shed for all for you he says let us grant that these are priests and for many he continues these cannot be priests and yet he says drink ye all of it i also could easily trifle on this point and turn the words of christ into a mockery by my words as that trifler my opponent does but those who rest upon the scriptures in arguing against us must be refuted by the scriptures these are the reasons which have kept me from condemning the bohemians who whether they be good or bad men certainly have the words and deeds of christ on their side while we have neither but only that idle device of men the church hath thus ordered it while it was not the church but the tyrants of the churches without the consent of the church that is of the people of god who have thus ordered it now where i ask is the necessity where is the religious obligation where is the use of denying to the laity reception in both kinds that is the visible sign when all men grant them the reality of the sacrament without the sign if they grant the reality which is the greater why do they not grant the sign which is the less 
For in every sacrament the sign, in so far as it is a sign, is incomparably less than the reality itself. What, then, I ask, should hinder the granting of the lesser thing when the greater is granted? Unless, indeed, as it seems to me, this has happened by the permission of God in His anger to be the occasion of a schism in the Church, and to show that having long ago lost the reality of the sacrament, we are fighting on behalf of the sign, which is the lesser thing, against the reality, which is the greatest and only important thing. Just as some persons fight on behalf of ceremonies against charity. This monstrous perversion appears to have begun at the same time at which we began in folly to set Christian charity at naught for the sake of worldly riches. That God might show by this terrible proof that we think signs of greater consequence than the realities themselves. What perversity it would be if you were to concede that the faith of baptism is granted to one seeking baptism, and yet deny him the sign of that very faith, namely, water. Last of all stand the irrefutable words of Paul, which must close every mouth. 1 Corinthians 11 I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. He does not say, as this friar falsely asserts out of his own head, I permitted to you. Nor is it true that he granted the Corinthians reception in both kinds on account of the contentions among them. In the first place, as the text itself shows, the contention was not about the reception in both kinds, but about the contemptuousness of the rich and the envy of the poor, as is clear from the text, which says, One is hungry and another is drunken, and Ye shame them that have not. Then, too, he is not speaking of what he delivered as if it were for the first time. He does not say, I received from the Lord, and I deliver to you, but I received and I have delivered, namely, at the beginning of his preaching, long before this contention arose, thus signifying that he had delivered to them the reception in both kinds. This delivering means enjoining, as he elsewhere uses the same word. Thus the smoke clouds of assertion which this friar heaps together concerning permission without scripture, without reason, and without cause, go for nothing. His opponents do not ask what his dreams are, but what the judgment of scripture is on these points. And out of it he can produce not a tittle in support of his dream, while they can bring forward so many thunderbolts in defense of their belief. Rise up, then, in one body, all ye flatterers of the Pope. Be active. Defend yourselves from the charge of impiety, tyranny, and treason against the gospel, and wrongful calumniation of your brethren, ye who proclaim as heretics those who cannot approve of the mere dreams of your brains in opposition to such plain and powerful scriptures. If either of the two are to be called heretics and schismatics, it is not the Bohemians, not the Greeks, since they take their stand on the Gospels. But you Romans who are heretics and impious schismatics, you who presume upon your own figments alone against the manifest teaching of the Scriptures of God. But what can be more ridiculous or more worthy of the head of this friar than to say that the Apostle wrote thus and gave this permission to a particular church, that of Corinth, but not to the universal church? Whence does he prove this? out of his usual store, his own impious head. When the universal church takes this epistle as addressed to itself, reads it, and follows it in every respect, 
why not in this part of it? If we admit that any one epistle of Paul, or one passage in any epistle, does not concern the universal church, we do away with the whole authority of Paul. The Corinthians might say that what he taught concerning faith, in writing to the Romans, did not concern them. What could be more blasphemous or more mad than this mad idea? Far be it from us to imagine that there can be one tittle in the whole of Paul, which the whole of the universal church ought not to imitate and keep. Not thus thought the fathers, nor any until these perilous times, in which Paul foretold that there should be blasphemers, blind and senseless men, among whom this friar is one, or even the foremost. But let us grant this intolerably wild assertion. If Paul gave permission to a particular church, then, on your own showing, the Greeks and the Bohemians are acting rightly, for they are particular churches. And therefore it is enough that they are not acting against the teaching of Paul, who at least gives them permission. Furthermore, Paul had not power to permit of anything contrary to the institution of Christ. Therefore, on behalf of the Greeks and the Bohemians, I set up these sayings of Christ and of Paul against thee, Rome, and all thy flatterers. Nor canst thou show that power has been given thee to change these things by one hair's breadth, much less to accuse others of heresy because they disregard thy presumptuous pretensions. It is thou who deservest to be accused of impiety and tyranny. We also read the words of Cyprian, who by himself is powerful enough to stand against all the Romanists, and who testifies in his discourse concerning the lapsed in the fifth book, that it had been the custom in that church for both kinds to be administered to laymen and even to children, yea, for the body of the Lord to be given into their hands, as he shows by many instances. Among other things he thus reproves some of the people. And because he does not immediately receive the body of the Lord with unclean hands, or drink the blood of the Lord with polluted mouth, he is angry with the priests as sacrilegious. You see that he is here speaking of certain sacrilegious laymen, who wished to receive from the priests the body and the blood. Have you here, wretched flatterer, anything to gabble? Say that this holy martyr, this teacher of the church, so highly endowed with the apostolic spirit, was a heretic, and availed himself of a permission in his particular church. He relates in the same place an incident which had occurred in his own sight and presence when he writes in the plainest terms that as a deacon he had given the cup to an infant girl, and when the child struggled against it, had even poured the blood of the Lord into its mouth. We read the same thing of St. Donatus, whose broken cup how dully does this wretched flatterer try to get rid of. I read, he says, that the cup was broken. I do not read that the blood was given. What wonder that he who perceives in the Holy Scriptures what he wills to perceive should also read in historical narratives what he wills to read. But can he in this way at all establish the power of the Church to decide, or can he thus confute heretics? But enough said on this subject, for I did not begin this treatise in order to answer one who is unworthy of an answer, but in order to lay open the truth of the matter. I conclude, then, that to deny reception in both kinds to the laity is an act of impiety and tyranny, and one not in the power of any angel, much less of any pope or council whatever. Nor do I care for the council of Constance, for 
if its authority is to prevail, why should not also that of the Council of Basel, which decreed on the other hand, that the Bohemians should be allowed to receive in both kinds, a point which was carried there after a long discussion, as the extant annals and documents of that council prove. This fact that ignorant flatterer brings forward on behalf of his own dreams, so wisely does he handle the whole matter. The first bondage, then, of this sacrament is as regards its substance or completeness, which the tyranny of Rome has wrested from us, not that they sin against Christ who use one kind only, since Christ has not commanded the use of any, but has left it to the choice of each individual, saying, This do ye, as oft as ye shall do it, in remembrance of me. But they sin who forbid that both kinds should be given to those who desire to use this freedom of choice. And the fault is not in the laity, but in the priests. The sacrament does not belong to the priests, but to all nor are the priests lords, but servants, whose duty it is to give both kinds to those who seek them, as often as they seek them. If they have snatched this right from the laity, and forcibly denied it to them, they are tyrants, and the laity are free from blame, whether they go without one or both kinds. For meanwhile they will be saved by their faith, and by their desire for a complete sacrament. So, too, the ministers themselves are bound to grant a baptism and absolution to him who seeks them. If they do not grant them, the seeker has full merit of his own faith, while they will be accused before Christ as wicked servants. Thus, of old, the holy fathers in the desert passed many years without communicating in either kind of the sacrament. I am not therefore advocating the seizing by force on both kinds, as if we were of necessity commanded and compelled to receive them. But I am instructing the conscience that every man may endure the tyranny of Rome, knowing that he has been forcibly deprived of his right in the sacrament on account of his sins. This only I would have, that none should justify the tyranny of Rome, as if she had done right in denying one kind to the laity, but that we should abhor it and withhold our consent from it, though we may bear it, just as if we were in bondage with the Turk, where we should not be at liberty to use either kind. For this reason I have said that it would be a fine thing, in my opinion, if this bondage were done away with by the decree of a general council, and Christian liberty restored to us out of the hands of the tyrant of Rome. And if to each man were left his own free choice about seeking and using it, as it is left in the case of baptism and penance. Now, however, by the same tyranny, he compels one kind to be received year by year. So extinct is the liberty granted us by Christ, and such are the deserts of our impious ingratitude. The other bondage of the same sacrament is a milder one, inasmuch as it regards the conscience, but one which it is by far the most perilous of all things to touch, much more to condemn. Here I shall be a Wycliffite and a heretic under six hundred names. What then? Since the bishop of Rome has ceased to be a bishop, and has become a tyrant, I fear absolutely none of his decrees, since I know that neither he nor even a general council has power to establish new articles of the faith. Formerly, when I was imbibing the scholastic theology, my lord the cardinal of Cambrai gave me occasion for reflection by arguing most acutely in the fourth book of the sentences, 
that it would be much more probable, and that fewer superfluous miracles would have to be introduced, if real bread and real wine, and not only their accidents, were understood to be upon the altar, unless the church had determined the contrary. Afterwards, when I saw what the church was, which had thus determined, namely, the Thomistic, that is, the Aristotelian church, I became bolder, and whereas I had been before in great straits of doubt, I now at length established my conscience in the former opinion, namely, that there were real bread and real wine, in which were the real flesh and real blood of Christ, in no other manner and in no less degree than the other party assert them to be under the accidents. And this I did because I saw that the opinions of the Thomists, whether approved by the Pope or by a council, remained opinions, and did not become articles of the faith, even were an angel from heaven to decree otherwise. For that which is asserted without the support of the Scriptures, or of an approved revelation, it is permitted to hold as an opinion, but it is not necessary to believe. Now this opinion of Thomas is so vague and so unsupported by the Scriptures or by reason, that he seems to me to have known neither his philosophy nor his logic. For Aristotle speaks of accidents and subject very differently from St. Thomas. And it seems to me that we ought to be sorry for so great a man when we see him striving not only to draw his opinions on matters of faith from Aristotle, but to establish them upon an authority whom he did not understand, a most unfortunate structure raised on a most unfortunate foundation. I quite consent, then, that whoever chooses to hold either opinion should do so. My only object now is to remove scruples of conscience, so that no man may fear being guilty of heresy if he believes that real bread and real wine are present on the altar. Let him know that he is at liberty, without peril to his salvation, to imagine, think, or believe in either of the two ways, since here there is no necessity of faith. In the first place, I will not listen to those, or make the slightest account of them, who will cry out that this doctrine is Wycliffite, Hussite, heretical, or opposed to the decisions of the Church. None will do this but those whom I have convicted of being themselves in many ways heretical, in the matter of indulgences, of free will and the grace of God, of good works and sins, and so forth. If Wycliffe was once a heretic, they are themselves ten times heretics, and it is an excellent thing to be blamed and accused by heretics and perverse sophists, since to please them would be the height of impiety. Besides, they can give no other proof of their own opinions, nor have they any other way of disproving the contrary ones than by saying, This is Wycliffeite, Hussite, heretical. This feeble argument, and no other, is always at the tip of their tongue. And if you ask for Scripture authority, they say, This is our opinion, and the Church has decided it thus. To such an extent do men who are reprobate concerning the faith, and unworthy of belief, dare to propose to us their own fancies, under the authority of the Church, as articles of the faith. There is, however, very much to be said for my opinion. In the first place this, that no violence ought to be done to the words of God, neither by man nor by angel, but that, as far as possible, they ought to be kept to their simplest meaning, and not to be taken, unless the circumstances manifestly compel us to do so, 
out of their grammatical and proper signification, that we may not give our adversaries any opportunity of evading the teaching of the Holy Scriptures. For this reason the ideas of origin were rightly rejected, when, in contempt of the plain grammatical meaning, he turned the trees and all other objects described as existing in paradise into allegories, since hence it might be inferred that trees were not created by God. So in the present case, since the evangelists write clearly that Christ took bread and blessed it, and since the book of Acts and of the apostle Paul also call it bread, real bread and real wine must be understood, just as the cup was real. For even these men do not say that the cup is transubstantiated. Since then it is not necessary to lay it down that a transubstantiation is effected by the operation of divine power. It must be held as a figment of human opinion, for it rests on no support of scripture or of reason. It is forcing on us a novel and absurd usage of words, to take bread as meaning the form or accidents of bread, and wine as the form or accidents of wine. Why do they not take all other things as forms or accidents? Even if everything else were consistent with this idea, it would not be lawful thus to enfeeble the word of God, and to deprive it so unjustly of its proper meaning. The church, however, kept the right faith for more than twelve centuries, nor did the Holy Fathers ever or anywhere make mention of this transubstantiation, a portentous word and dream indeed, until the counterfeit Aristotelian philosophy began to make its inroads on the church within these last three hundred years, during which many other erroneous conclusions have also been arrived at, such as that the divine essence is neither generated nor generates, that the soul is the substantial form of the human body, and other like assertions, which are made absolutely without reason or cause, as the Cardinal of Cambrai himself confesses. They will say, perhaps, that we shall be in peril of idolatry if we do not admit that bread and wine are not really there. This is truly ridiculous, for the laity have never learnt the subtle philosophical distinction between substance and accidents, nor, if they were taught it, could they understand it. And there is the same peril if we keep the accidents which they see, as in the case of the substance which they do not see. For if it is not the accidents which they adore, but Christ concealed under them, why should they adore the substance which they do not see? But why should not Christ be able to include his body within the substance of bread as well as within the accidents? Fire and iron, two different substances, are so mingled in red-hot iron that every part of it is both fire and iron. Why may not the glorious body of Christ much more be in every part of the substance of the bread? Christ is believed to have been born of the inviolate virgin of his mother. In this case, too, let them say that the flesh of the virgin was for a time annihilated, or, as they will have it to be more suitably expressed, transubstantiated, that Christ might be enwrapped in its accidents, and at length come forth through its accidents. The same will have to be said respecting the closed door and the closed entrance of the tomb, through both of which he entered and went out without injury to them. But hence has sprung that Babylon of a philosophy concerning continuous quantity distinct from substance, 
till things have come to such a point that they themselves do not know what are accidents and what is substance. For who has ever proved to a certainty that heat and cold, color, light, weight, and form are accidents? Lastly, they have been driven to pretend that God creates a new substance additional to those accidents on the altar, on account of the saying of Aristotle that the essence of the accident is to be in something, and have been led to an infinity of monstrous ideas, from all of which they would be free if they simply allowed the bread on the altar to be real bread. I rejoice greatly that at least among the common people there remains a simple faith in this sacrament. They neither understand nor argue whether there are accidents in it or substance, but believe with simple faith that the body and blood of Christ are truly contained in it, leaving to these men of leisure the task of arguing as to what it contains. But perhaps they will say that we are taught by Aristotle that we must take the subject and predicate of an affirmative proposition to signify the same thing, or, to quote the words of that monster himself in the sixth book of his Metaphysics, an affirmative proposition requires the composition of the extremes, which they explain as their signifying the same thing. Thus, in the words, This is my body, they say that we cannot take the subject to signify the bread, but the body of Christ. What shall we say to this? Whereas we are making Aristotle and human teachings the censors of such sublime and divine matters, why do we not rather cast away these curious enquiries, and simply adhere to the words of Christ, willing to be ignorant of what is done in this sacrament, and content to know that the real body of Christ is present in it by virtue of the words of consecration? Is it necessary to comprehend altogether the manner of the divine working? But what do they say to Aristotle, who applies the term subject, to all the categories of accidents, although he takes the substance to be the first subject. Thus, in his opinion, this white, this great, this something, are subjects, because something is predicated of them. If this is true, and if it is necessary to lay down a doctrine of transubstantiation, in order that it may not be asserted of the bread that it is the body of Christ, why, I ask, is not a doctrine of transaccidentation also laid down, that it may not be affirmed of an accident that it is the body of Christ. For the same danger remains if we regard this white thing or this round thing as the subject. On whatever principle transubstantiation is taught, on that same ought transaccidentation ought to be taught, on account of the two terms of the proposition, as is alleged, signifying the same thing. If, however, by a high effort of understanding you make abstraction of the accident, and refuse to regard it as signified by the subject in saying, This is my body, why can you not as easily rise above the substance of the bread, and refuse to let it be understood as signified by the subject, so that This is my body may be true in the substance no less than in the accident? Especially so, since this is a divine work of almighty power, which can operate to the same extent and in the same way in the substance as it can in the accident. But not to philosophize too far, does not Christ appear to have met these curious inquiries in a striking manner, when he said concerning the wine, not hoc est sanguis meus, 
but hic est sanguis meus. He speaks much more clearly still when he brings in the mention of the cup, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, 1 Corinthians 11. Does he not seem to have meant to keep us within the bounds of simple faith, just so far as to believe that his blood is in the cup? If, for my part, I cannot understand how the bread can be the body of Christ, I will bring my understanding into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and firmly believe in simple adherence to his word, not only that the body of Christ is in the bread, but that the bread is the body of Christ. For so shall I be kept safe by his words, where it is said, Jesus took bread, and blessed it, and brake it, and said, Take, eat, this, that is, this bread which he had taken and broken, is my body. Paul also says, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? He does not say that the communion is in the bread, but that the bread itself is the communion of the body of Christ. What if philosophy does not understand these things? The Holy Spirit is greater than Aristotle. Does it even understand the transubstantiation which these men speak of, seeing that they themselves confess that all philosophy breaks down on this point? The reason why, in the Greek and Latin, the pronoun this is referred to the body, is that the genders are alike. But in the Hebrew, where there is no neuter gender, it is referred to the bread, so that we might properly say, this bread is my body. Both the usage of language and common sense prove that the subject points to the bread and not to the body, when he says, hoc est corpus meum, that is, this bread is my body. As then the case is with Christ himself, so is it also with the sacrament. For it is not necessary to the bodily indwelling of the Godhead that the human nature should be transubstantiated, so that the Godhead may be contained beneath the accidents of the human nature. But each nature is entire, and we can say with truth, This man is God, this God is man. Though philosophy does not receive this, yet faith receives it, and greater is the authority of the word of God than the capacity of our intellect. Thus, too, in the sacrament it is not necessary to the presence of the real body and real blood that the bread and wine should be transubstantiated, so that Christ may be contained beneath the accidents. But while both bread and wine continue there, it can be said with truth, this bread is my body, this wine is my blood, and conversely. Thus will I understand this matter in honor of the holy words of God, which I will not allow to have violence done them by the petty reasonings of men, or to be distorted into meanings alien to them. I give leave, however, to others to follow the other opinion, which is distinctly laid down in the decretal, provided only, as I have said, that they do not press us to accept their opinions as articles of faith. End of section 1